And let's go to the Lord in prayer as we dig into this really beefy, juicy, rich section. Lord, I'm so thankful for this night and for what you're going to do here. You have such great plans. My prayer tonight, Lord, is for every one of us to really hear you, to take your call upon our lives, to grab the mantle, to step forward as you would call us to, to hear your voice and know you. But do so much more, Lord, than just rest in our laurels to be like the lepers who have found bread while everyone's starving. But Lord, to go and declare in the highways and byways and under bridges that you save. Make us people, Lord, that take your mantle, that take your call and gladly follow you as you call us to. And Jesus, fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that you would be seen. Fill me to overflowing that you would use this body, this mouth, this voice as a vessel now for your glory. And thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you another night. So lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. In your name, Jesus. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any night, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Especially in a night like this one, it'll be very easy for us all to fall asleep if we're not careful. And I'm not saying that because the teaching is going to be boring or because the text is, because the text is awesome, but just because we're in a room that is unusually warm for a Wednesday night. Usually on a night like this, Daniel is, is, is building igloos. But Daniel's always cold. I don't know how a guy with that much hair could be so cold. That's another story. In Judges 4 and 5, we have another common judge setting. The book of Judges, if you remember, is primarily this cycle but in this cycle, in, in the simplest sense, there's this apostasy that comes in the resulting oppression. Now, that's a constant. Uh, basically, once a judge is raised up in that oppression because the people cry out to God, the judge delivers them. And during the rest of the life of that judge, the people seem to follow God. And then once that judge passes off the scene, well, then, of course, they go and turn their back on God and start another apostasy, resulting in another oppression. And so that's the constant. The variable, of course, is who the, the judge is going to be, the person that's raised up, the deliverer. We've met three now, by the way, as you've seen. In chapter one, by the way, we just saw the course and cost of compromise. And then in chapters two and three, we saw that God said that he would, that they would know war in that compromise. They will know war. He will, through those battles, through those challenges we have in life, that we will be taught. He will prove us and therefore ultimately teach us. And then we've met our first three judges. We met Othniel, who uh, stood against Kushan Rishithaim, by the way, of Mesopotamia, and remember Mesopotamia, middle of the rivers, that's between the Tigris and the Euphrates, that means that's Iraq today. And then we, we met Ehud, who was our second guy. He was uh, fought Eglon, remember the fat Eglon, the Hud uh, of Moab. And Moab, I remind you, is east, today perhaps the area around Jordan, uh, in the area of Jordan. And so it's interesting because the battles, other than Shamgar, which gets that little last verse at the end of chapter 3, uh, really, all of the battles have been in the south for the most part, but definitely in the east. They've come from the east, like they've come over from Iraq or they've come over from Jordan. And now uh, that moves farther north, as we see here with the guy. So now we have this whole new battle. Now, again, we have the apostasy that's common. We have the oppression. The same thing's going to happen in your life and mine, too. You're probably aware of that. I mean, you just you turn your back on the Lord and life is going to get rough. I mean, life isn't, isn't unrough without him, but we have, I mean, with him, we just have peace 
in the storms. And we have comfort in the storms. And we have hope in the storms. The storms don't go away. Uh, I mean, God doesn't promise that there will be no storms as a Christian. He promises that we'll endure through them. But boy, you turn your back on the Lord, the storms are going to still be there. But now you'll actually not have the shelter of God and all of that. And that is really, you don't want to be there. And so that's a common thing. But what's interesting now is the characters we see, they're going to play this. There are two women. And by the way, I remind you, I mean, we are talking about a period of time that is over a thousand years before Jesus. Twelve, thirteen hundred years before Jesus. And you're in the Middle East. Go to the Middle East today and talk about a woman hero and see how well Wonder Woman plays out in Iraq, Iran, or Saudi Arabia. See how well that plays out today. First of all, they'd ban her because her outfit was too spangly and too revealing. And then second, the idea of elevating a woman to a status of hero would be unheard of. But here we have that the two women, we're going to see in the story, a girl named Deborah, Deborah meaning bee, uh, and then a, a gal named Yael, which, by the way, means the Lord is God, like as in Yahweh and Elohim. Both of them, by the way, we're going to see full of bravery, initiative, full of faith. Then we're going to meet our two male characters, if you will, the counterparts. First of all, the, the foe, Sisera. Sisera, by the way, we're going to find means battle array. And, and he, what we're going to find is though he's a formidable foe and certainly he's well armed, in the end of it all, he's going to wind up fleeing. That tells you a little bit about the status there. And then we're going to find our unlikely hero in all this, a guy named Barak. Now, some of us are familiar today with a man named Barak, but it's a very different character. Barak, by the way, means lightning or lightning flashes. And interestingly enough, by the way, this guy who is intended to be the hero, he's supposed to be the hero as a man, has to be reminded, rebuked, and reprimanded like the tribes that will actually not insert themselves at the battle when it actually comes in and hits in, in full steam. And it's an interesting concept because what you have are two women that are really faithful. If, if, they're, if you're going to actually look at examples of faithful, obedient, you know, committed living, the women are actually better examples. And I think that that is a strange, crazy idea that such a thing could be written 1,200 years before Jesus. That's over 3,000 years ago in the Middle East. And then anyone could think in anywhere that this could have possibly been the invention of man. No man's going to write a story like this, especially in the Middle East, especially a few thousand years ago. And we really see in this, by the way, a time where the men, we as men, have to go to the woodshed. Because, and that's a, that's a, a metaphor that basically means we need to get a little bit of a whooping. And the reason is simple. That in this story, what we're going to find is that the men are lacking all of their qualities, which, by the way, God asserts when he uses the term manliness in the New Testament. When we see terms like noble or terms like faithful, often all of those are wrapped up in a term andros. And andros means man or, or means brother. And it is assumed that a real man will be committed, faithful, will be a man who has the ability or has the willingness to assert himself when necessary. To actually be one who is willing to instigate the situation and not just wait to be asked. And that, by the way, is not our culture. Where are the men? Now, I can actually say, in our fellowship, we have, for the first time in our five years of existence, really at a time where we're starting to see men take, take leading roles. But it certainly hasn't been an easy ride to see that. 
And what we see is it is counter to the culture. Sad as it is, it's even counter to the Christian culture. So let me give you a couple quick statistics as I've been reading up on this a little bit to just talk about our culture for just a second and we'll dive into our text. Stephen Swinford, is the senior political correspondent, writes in July of 2013 that the proportion of children born to unmarried mothers hit a record of 47.5% last year. And that was, by the way, the year 2012. He had predicted, and properly so, that by the year 2016, half of the children born, or over half of the children born in London, would be born to unwed mothers. And it is true. Last year, a total of 346,595 babies were born outside of marriage and civil partnerships. That means outside of not just marriage, but outside of those people who are living together but not married. In England and in Wales, equivalent to 47.5%. It was the first time, as we saw it this year, was the first time in the history since the census began in 1801 where unmarried women outnumbered married women when it came to being mothers. Now, I can't tell you that all of those cases are because of a man. Well, I can tell you this. All babies are because of a man somehow. We're adults. I don't have to develop that. But you get the idea somewhere in all of that. Now, that doesn't mean because a gal is single, it's the man's fault. But I can guarantee you, certainly... Many of them are, and we're aware of that. There are certain cultures, by the way, and this makes me sick to my stomach, where it's actually expected. There are certain cultures where it's like, well, we're just, and you insert your culture here, your nationality here, and just that particular culture, men have babies, but they're not fathers. And I'm thinking, Christianity needs to follow Jesus, and we need to follow a father who is committed. We need to follow a father who is willing to to make the hard call and to be sacrificial for the sake of His children. And my Heavenly Father has given every sacrifice possible to show His commitment to me. Interesting. It tells us, by the way, now even amongst those that were, I remind you, 150,000 of them declared to be in civil partnerships. Now, when I looked at the Office of National Statistics, and we have that here in the UK, what we find is is that single women pregnancies in England are the fourth highest in the entire EU. Did you know that? In the last decade, cohabitating couples were the fastest growing people group, up 29%, which now leaves us at 2 million lone parents. That means a child or children being raised by a single parent, 91% of them, of course, are mothers. Now, I'm not here to bag on a person who was raising a child by themselves. I actually think they deserve a medal. When I think of how I'm trying to raise two children with a wife who's amazing, I can't even imagine not having that backup in the house. The thing that amazed me the most as I was looking at the articles was the most recent article where it said, Where are the fathers? And it said that of the single parents, of the children born to broken homes, and we won't even talk about all the ways that they're more likely to be in gangs and like drop out of school and all those things, 20 to 25% of them, 24% to be precise, 24.7%, of the children born to broken homes or in broken homes will not ever see 
one of their parents again after, within, within the, after, after three years. Three years of that child's life. By the time the, t- the child turns three, 24.7 of those children will never see one of those parents again. And that amazes me. Of course, of that standard, 93%, 94%, 93-point-something percent are fathers. That means there are going to be 25% of kids from broken homes that will actually, I'd say 24 comfortably percent of the kids born from broken homes that will never really know their father. And what's sad is how much of that can happen in the church. When God speaks about revival, when He speaks about His Spirit being poured out and actually seeing His people restored, if there's a place to see it, it's the book of Malachi, the last chapter. And when God promises such a thing would happen, I find it fascinating. He says, and I will renew the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children of their fathers. He says, you want to see a sign of real revival? Look to the fathers and you'll see it there. And we're aware of the fact that's even just the fathers who've actually up and left. And we're talking about physically. There are often, we know that there are a lot of other fathers who are in the house, but not really in the house. They're kind of cohabitating, but they're not really. Well, you get it. Here, what we're going to see is the men in our story really are the men not to reflect, not to be ambitious, to become like. But rather, these are the kind of people that should stir something inside of us in in indignation. Not talking about guys. Ladies, my prayer is it will drive you to prayer, not to indignation. You don't need any more of that for the guys around you. But but for the men, that there would be something inside of us that would burn like a fire that would say, that can't be me. That is not going to be me. But it would be more than just a temporary fire that would burn upon the kindling of a temporary emotional experience but it would rather be out of a commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ and to our Father who has clearly shown that commitment that we would seek to become like Him and not emulate the world around us who grants us permission to be jerks, selfish, self-centered, self-gratifying, faithless, untrustworthy men. Failures in the sight of God. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts with this. When Ehud was dead. Now, interesting for what it's worth, I remind you, we've met three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Shamgar gets that last verse. It seems like God just jumps over Shamgar and goes right to the next cycle. And he says that the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the fourth of seven times he'll say that in our text. Interesting, by the way, as I started to look at this, I realized that when we look at the book of Judges, we really have, until about chapter 16, 17, we really have, you know, the Judges. And then we have this epitaph afterwards, where we have these crazy, the sickest story in all of Scripture, in my opinion, that far blows away Revelation, in my opinion. Sick, sick story about this crazy Levite and the concubine, of all things, that he has and what happens to her. And it's an afterstatement to all of these judges. And what's interesting is we looked at just the judges. There are no priests. In all of this time, we're not going to see one sought. There's no Urim and Thummim, you know, where the priest kind of pulls the, the direction. There's no going to the tabernacle. The last time we saw that, to be honest, was really when... There was a civil war almost took place because of that replica altar, if you remember, at the end of Joshua. And the next time we're really going to be at the altar, other than people, you know, in the epitaph speaking about the time where they almost wipe out an entire uh, 
tribe with Benjamin will be Hannah, who is crying there because she has no child, who will be the mother of Samuel. We really don't see sacrifices. We see a review of it in Judges 2, where he reviews that situation with Joshua. But then the next sacrifice will really be on a bad altar, a false altar, where Gideon has to tear down his dad's idol and kill one of his dad's sacrificial bulls. He has to take down an offering that was given to another god. And then the next time we really see one will be when Elkanah, Hannah's husband, comes to offer sacrifice where Hannah will cry and God will promise her the son Samuel. And I think this is what we're looking at. A time where God says people did what was evil in his sight. And yet what we read is that man did what was right in his. And it's interesting how what man could do that is right in his own eyes could be evil in God's. So, Ehud was now dead and we know where that goes. Children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord, verse 2, sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan. Now, Yabin seems to be either a common name, someone to say it's a title, and that's only because, and this is really important, if you're a note taker, mark down on your own time, Joshua 11. Because Joshua 11 also took down a guy named Yabin, who was the king of Chatzor, like this guy. The only difference is, the guy Yabin, back in Joshua 11, by the way, that guy actually, according to Josephus, would say he had 20,000 chariots. 20,000. Try to remember that number when we see the battle here. Joshua took on a Yabin, same, same area, who had 20,000 chariots and an army that could be, couldn't be numbered like the sand on the shore. But now, because the people have done evil in the sight of God, he sold them. And by the way, anytime you want to run off to, and sell yourself away from God, there will always be a buyer. God gave that as an overview in Judges 2. It was Kushan Rashathayim, if you remember, in chapter 3. The next time will be the Philistines and the people of Ammon in chapter 10. They're always willing to take slaves. And think about it. When you sell yourself, you've become a slave. You run from God And here's the simplest of it. You run from God, you are going to make yourself a slave. It's just a matter of to whom. So, the Lord sold him into the hand of King of Yabin, Yabin, King of Canaan, sorry. And it says, who reigned in Chatzor. The commander of his army was, and here's our man, Sisera, again, meaning battle array. He will be mentioned in in 1 Samuel 12 in review, and in Psalm 83, when they review as well, when it says, deal with them as Midian, as with Sisera and Yabin at the brook Kishon. And we'll see that here in a moment. This man, Sisera, we read in verse 2, dwelt in Hadasheth HaGoyim. Goyim means Gentiles to this day. Goy is one, im is plural. They'd look at you and go, Goyim. Hadasheth means the woodlands. So this means the woodlands of the Gentiles. And the children cried out to the Lord, for they had been had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years, he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Let me ask you, if you could remember in your short-term memory, when Joshua took on that Yabin, how many chariots did that guy have? 20,000. How many does this guy have? 900. I'd like you to consider that means that Joshua took on an army that had 22 times more Chariots. And that's basically your battle tank of the day. But 900? Well, one chariot's more than enough if you're running from God. The people cried out to the Lord, and it's an important note here in verse 3, because they had been oppressed for 20 years. Now, don't miss that. 
The first time when Othniel delivered them, it was after they had been oppressed for eight years they cried out to the Lord. Then when Eglon, the king of Moab, came after them, he oppressed them for 18 years and they cried out to the Lord. And now, the king of Chazor, who reigned in Chazor, Yavin, oppresses them for 20. And there's a small point to be made here before we start meeting our hero, or one of them at least, and that's this. We can easily develop a tolerance to our oppression. Remember the first time you did something that amazed you because it was wrong and evil? And there was a part of you that was disgusted. There was a part of you that was angry. There was a part of you that was indignant. There was a part of you that was ashamed. I'm assuming I'm not the only one who went through those emotions. And you wanted to take a soul bath, if that makes sense. You just wanted to clean it up. You just, like, that, that, that can't happen again. You ever have that happen again? But this time it wasn't as loud. I think it was Walt Whitman who wrote a poem about a buoy bell. Uh, buoy bell, by the way, I, we used to hear them. We lived uh, in California. We lived off the coast. I mean, we, you could see the surf report from our window. We were up on a hill. And we could hear that bell ringing at night. What that? Because in our area, in a little towny town called Cayucas, there was a rock that jetted up from the ground that they called Mouse Rock. It created a really good surf. And you can, it, was a, it was a quick wave, but it was a high wave. It was about double overhead. In other words, it was twice my height. You drop into that thing and you go for a quick ride on it. And the reason was because there was this big rock that stuck out of the ground. You couldn't see it. But it stuck out of the, 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 the floor, the ocean floor, in such a way that it helped create this wave. So they attached a buoy bell to it. Now, what that was, in essence, was a great weight with a bell on the top. And when the waves kind of hit, it would ring. And the purpose of it was to, to say, if you're a ship, don't go near this thing. This is danger. And that bell, any sailor, and in our area, we knew a lot of sailors. They would, they would fish for things like shrimp uh, and for white fish, the things we make fish and chips out of. And they knew that, that, that bell well. When there would be riptides and different things that would kind of, you know, blow the boats t- sideways, they would often listen for that bell because they knew if they were near that bell, they were in trouble. If the road, if the, the sea got stormy, there were certain places to steer towards, that bell was, was a re- constant reminder that the farther away from that thing you go, the better. And Whitman, by the way, actually, by the way, interestingly enough, used it as a comparison to our conscience. And I really like that because I think about that in our own self, how God has planted the Holy Spirit inside of you now. But even before we ever received the Holy Spirit on the inside, receiving him at Ephesians 1.13, the day we said yes to Jesus, God still gave us a conscience. He spoke in our ears. His Holy Spirit spoke from the outside and said, hey, 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 you know this is wrong. The only difference is then we had no interest in listening to him. But now that we've said yes to him, that voice is much louder and much more pronounced, at least in the beginning. But the more we numb ourselves to whatever that thing is, because you know what happens? The, the worst thing kind of that can happen to us, but it does, the best thing if we could prove our own repentance, and that is that somehow in it we don't get nailed. We don't get hammered. We don't get caught. And so it kind of slips away. Interestingly enough, that when we sought to restore pastors, the one thing more than anything that we had to deal with that wasn't political was actually a sin the pastor had never repented of, but somehow when it continued in it, but never really 
first of all, sought help. But second of all, never really got serious about it because at this point his conscience had been seared as with a hot iron, which, of course, is what Scripture says happens to us. And what happens then is ministry becomes a joke and God becomes a joke. Because if he's great and he's just, why is he still letting me get away with this? And the same people, worship leaders happens a lot with, the same people that were so passionate about God now, to be honest, are cynical. And it wasn't even because of a politic they could blame it on it. But it was because, to be honest, because they kept sinning and they didn't feel it anymore. I remember writing a song once called, Can You Still Feel Your Sin? And it was written to me, by the way. And the whole idea of the song is, is that are you still in a place where the wrong thing said or the wrong thing felt or the attitude against the person or whatever? I, you know, do you still feel it? Do you still hear that bell in the distance? Are you at that place where you're just kind of like, well, you know, we'll just let God sort it out in the end. When I had first gotten saved, there were gigantic sins. And some of you, you know, you, that's your testimony. There were gigantic sins in my life. I mean, things that even before I was saved, I knew were sins. Now, there's a lot of other things since then I've come to realize were sins that I had no idea were really sins before I knew the Lord. But I remember when he was and he had we had removed these things, man, he had removed these gigantic mountains. And my view was so strange because I could actually see a horizon that I could never have seen before. And I remember I got I actually got scared. I, I mean, and I, I like freaked out. And the reason was because there was a part of me that was like, well, man, don't let me think that the other things that I know that are out there that must be there. The sins that I, that I must feel like, well, you've kind of taken care of it all. Now I don't have any sin left. I, I, I had to know better. I actually wound up writing a song called Show Me What I'm Doing Wrong. And that was, boy, careful when you sing a song like that. Because the Lord is more than happy to show you. The enemy is too, by the way, on that. And here's our point back in our text. It went from eight years, and then they cried out to the Lord. To 18 years, and then they cried out to the Lord. And then 20 years, and then they cried out to the Lord. How long does it take before I cry out to the Lord? How long before it isn't just, all right, God, please just clean me of that because I still need to be a good Christian. But I mean, seriously, where it's like, God, I want to repent of this. I don't want you just to wash me of it so that the next time I'm going to start with a clean slate. I really want to change. Because unfortunately, Israel is not demonstrating proper repentance. What Israel's demonstrating is the sort of cyclical mindset that comes with not being very serious about it. Well, with that we read then, so what happens as a result of that? The children of Israel cried out to the Lord now because the guy had 900 chariots, though, again, though clearly 22 times more than that had been taken down by Joshua. And that was, by the way, less than 100 years from this point. And for 20 years they had been harshly oppressed. And wouldn't you want to cry out the first day you were oppressed? Interesting, by the way, the generation that left Egypt knew what it was like to be oppressed. Let's be honest. They knew what it was like. They were beat by the Egyptians. They were slaves. The second generation, a fair portion of them, would have actually seen the stripes on their mom and dad and uncle and aunt. They would have seen that. Anyone younger than 20... But there was a whole generation that rose up that really had never known oppression like that. They've never really known what slavery is. And this is how they're going to learn it. Hey man, maybe you were born in a really good Christian home and you've never really known it, but you turn your back on God, you'll learn what slavery is. 
And it shouldn't surprise us that even people raised in the greatest of homes can find themselves addicted to things once they turn from God. Because all that is is a slavery. Well, with that, it tells us now, verse 4, let's meet our hero, at least one of them. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now, to me, this is one of the most enigmatic verses. I'll tell you a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, her husband's name means torches or torchy. It's kind of fun. So you've got the two main characters. Ultimately, we're going to find Mr. Lightning and Mr. Torch. How's that for fun? So her name, of course, means B. But here's the interesting thing. It says she's acting as a judge. How in the world did that happen? We don't read. We don't read that people took a vote and decided this gal should judge. We don't read why in the world this gal was a judge. Now, every person prior to this that judged Israel was somebody that actually, at least in the book of Judges, were people that had actually actively delivered Israel from an enemy, and then they took the the position of a judge afterwards. Moses did that by taking him out of Egypt, then became a judge for the people. Joshua did it by bringing him into the nation, or bringing him into, into Israel, into Canaan. And then he judged the people. And then after that, Othniel. And after Othniel, Ehud. But now this gal, we don't read that she's done anything up to this point, but she is a prophetess and she sits under a palm tree of Deborah. What we do know is that she's married. Later on, what we'll see is it appears as if she's married, uh, that she has children. And she was judging. People were coming to her to, finish, to fix disputes. So you guys are arguing with each other. She's the one who's going to solve it. She's Judge Judy. That's the idea here. In verse 5 it says, And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah, there you go, between Ramah and Bethel. Ramah, by the way, will be a place, they're both, by the way, right on the border of Ephraim and Benjamin. But in uh, this place, Ramah, by the way, was formerly Luz. We kind of know that from, uh, from um, being back uh, in the Torah. But it's important to recognize, actually, and we'll see it also in Joshua, but it will also be the place where Samuel will be uh, being a, a judge, which is interesting because it sets that up here. But she sat between this place she, and this, and under this tree, and apparently that was her courtroom. So as big as somewhere in there, there's a hill, and on this hill there's a tree, and you can look from a distance and you can see a big palm tree in the distance, and you go, well, that's where Judge Judy is. We're going to go see Deborah. And, uh, and with that, you'd go and you'd stand there under the tree, and she'd go and make a decision on something, and it was binding, apparently. And so the children came to her for judgment. But it's interesting to tell us, again, that she was a prophetess in verse 4. A prophetess means she speaks the words of God. And what we're going to see is that's, that, that's what she does. Now let's meet our other character. Verse 6. Then she sent and called Barak, called for Barak, the son of Abinoham. By the way, again, his name is Lightning. I like this. His, his father... His father's name is, my father is delightful. (laughs) Who names their kid that? Think that through. That means grandpa named his son, my dad's delightful. Anyway, there you go. She sent for him from a place called Kadesh in Naphtali. Now he sends him from up north. Kadesh, by the way, around you means holy place. It was a formerly fortified city of refuge in Naphtali, by the way. Still this day, to this time, it's a city of refuge. And notice, by the way, he's there. She has to call for him. And she says to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the men of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Yabin's army, 
and his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Now stop for a minute. This is, notice, this is the first thing. Okay, let's just, who do we want to pull out for this? This is just going to be rough. Let's just pull out Bruno. Sorry, Bruno. But let's just say for a moment you're Barak. You know, uh, and this way it doesn't look like I'm character typing. Okay, so. I'm pulling out of Barak, and the first thing, he shows up on stage, we're watching this as a play, and the first thing she says is, hasn't God already told you to do this? That's the first thing. The first thing, the poor guy gets rebuked. The moment, That's the first experience we meet with the guy. Didn't God say to do this? And didn't he actually promise victory? This is what God said. Go and get 10,000 men. What we're going to find is there were 40,000 that were available, appears, because we're going to see that in this song in the next chapter. But she says in this, didn't God say, get 10,000 guys from up there up north where you're at, and because I'm going to bring this guy and his army at you, and then I'm going to deliver him into your hand. And here's my first thing. And understand, I'm asking myself this as I'm taking personal inventory. The first thing is, is there obedience found in my heart? Obedience over the hard things. But this is a different kind of obedience than God says, brush your teeth. This is an obedience that directly is birthed from, begat from faith. Think it through. Because what God says is, if you need to do this because I'm going to bring this guy after you. Now, I can trust that. Okay, if I gather my 10,000 guys, we're going to have to go and fight. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that God promised victory, and that's what I have to trust. Because one thing's for sure, I'm confident that the moment we start this, I'm going to wind up fighting. And somewhere in it, we don't read, we can't read into the mind of this guy, Barak. So we have to try to, I mean, some of it I have to start going, you know, and there's some places I take it only because I'm doing this with myself. I'm putting myself on the cheese grater, and I'm kind of doing this a little bit, and then I'm sifting through it to find out if there really are shreds of obedience that are birthed from faith here. When God says, are you willing to do this? Hey, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a fight. But is it worth the fight? And isn't that how this book started? This book started by a guy that showed that the girl, and remember that was Othniel, was, was that the, the father, Caleb's of the, of the daughter, Achsa, says whoever is really willing to take that town gets my daughter. And it sets the scene for the entire book, and that is, is it worth the fight? Is it worth the fight? Is being a full-on Christian worth the fight? Or do we rather just rather live a passive, lackadaisical, Laodicean Christian life? I couldn't live with myself if that's, I mean, not for long. And he says, and he looks at, and, and you get the idea, it's like, didn't God promise you the victory? Yeah, you know when you're going to jump into this, a fight's going to have to happen. You know a fight's going to have to happen. But God already promised you the victory. Do you trust him enough to obey? Or do you actually say, don't worry, I've got grace here. We're going to be cool. Because let's be honest, we can do that. So that's how it starts. And I ask myself, where are the men? Am I one of those? That is obedient and trusts God enough to act. Now, I'm not just trying to trust God enough to tell someone else to do something. That's easy. But trust God enough for me to take that step and do it. Hey, it's one thing to go, well, I trust God Good on you. I trust God to pray for you to make that happen. And we live in a culture where if we can whine long enough, maybe someone will get up and fix it for us. But that is not being a godly man. 
Barak's response is in verse 8. Now, I remind you, up to this point, he hasn't spoken. He's called onto the stage and he gets rebuked. Hey, that's a great way to start it off, but let's see how he responds. Verse 8. Barak says to her, If you will go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, there are some that might think, well, you know, Deborah is a prophetess, and maybe because of that, that'll give him what he needs to kind of recruit his 10,000 people. But does he really need that if God told him to do it? God did not tell him to get Deborah. Well, God told him somewhere in this, God told Deborah, Deborah, you need to go and tell this guy, you need to call him over and tell him, didn't I tell him to do something? Why isn't he doing it? Get up and do it. And by the way, we all need people like that in our life. Loving and encouraging, but to be honest, real coaches. Real coach. And it's like, this is the, one of the problems, forgive me, and I'm going to sound general here, but in the dynamic, in a traditional dynamic in a home, a mother is a very nurturing person. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. And a father is usually the guy that says, now get up and let's do it again. Let's make it happen. <laughs> what happens when you take one of those away? What you have is if you only have the nurturing without the challenging, what you have is a person who will never step forward, not without applause, and feels entitled. And that's exactly the culture we live in. We live in a mollycoddled culture. And I'm not just talking about England. I'm talking about the Western world. America is just the same. So he goes, look at, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. And here's my third thing I'm asking. First, is there in my heart that obedient man? And second, do I trust God enough to act? But then, am I willing to do it alone if I have to? I mean, is there that kind of trust? Hey, there are some times in life God will call you to do something and you'll have to do it alone. And you can't wait for somebody else to join you to do it. You can't wait for the applause. And you can't wait for, well, if somebody else walks with me, I'll do it. Look at, when it comes to being a man in my household, I have to do it alone. I have to follow the Lord and lead my family. Now, look at, that's not saying leave my wife in the dust or leave my children in the dust, but it means make the choices that God tells me to make and then draw them in. But there are times, let's face it, where you're in a crowd and if you're going to walk with Jesus and be bold, you are going to stand alone. Matter of fact, to be bold at all, you have to be prepared for that. Are you ready to do that? And I'm talking to you men. Ladies, can I warn you to say man up too in the right way? Follow Deborah's example because Deborah's going to do that. Hey, look at it. I'm not going to go unless you go. So here's the beginning of it. We meet these two guys. She says, didn't God tell you to do this? Didn't he promise you victory? And he's like, well, I won't go unless you go with me. Here's her response, verse 9. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, where's her husband in all of this? Now, I remind you, this means he's going to go to war. Imagine the note that's left. Or she has to sit down. It's over dinner. It's a candlelit dinner. And Deborah has to say to Hugo, Hugo, I have to go with Bruno to go fight ISIS with 10,000 guys who we're going to find is that have no weapons. How do you think Hugo would respond to that? Unless Lapidoth is, I mean, and, and I remind you, the guy's name means torchy, fiery. He's a fiery guy. 
I think that's interesting. But somewhere in all that, maybe he was a man of great faith. We really don't. Matter of fact, we don't ever really meet him. We only know that he's that he exists from the story. And she says, no, no, here's the fascinating thing, and don't miss this. She doesn't say, there'll be no glory for you at the end of this. And that's the way I would normally want to read this, right? When the story's done, you'll get no glory. But notice what it says. There'll be no glory for you in the journey. I think that's interesting. I think every time we're willing to follow God, regardless of the cost, every time we're willing to follow God with the hard call, but we may have to do it alone. God has this unique glory that he wants to reveal to us in the journey for us. Not just at the end of it. True, at the end of it, a gal will get credit and he won't. But I wonder how many times I'm busy drawing somebody else into something God told me to do that I could have discovered other things, but I was too busy looking after other people instead of following the Lord instead. She says, you know what? In the end of it all, there'll be no glory for you in the journey of this. It'll be given to a woman. And it says, by the way, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And I remind you, 3,000 plus years ago in the Middle East, could you imagine reading this? Imagine trying to read this story right now in Saudi Arabia or in Dubai. See how that plays out. Or Tower Hamlets. Anyways. So Barak, verse 10, called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went with him, of course. Now Heber, the Kenite, now we get to our meeting our other character, our other hero, heroine. And Barak, so it says, now Heber, the Kenite, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree, at Za'anaim, which is beside Kadesh. Now, beside Kadesh, I remind you, that's interesting, because that's where <clears throat> Barak was. Remember how she had to go and get him at Kadesh? Now, here's the story. Don't miss this. In Judges 1.16, we read that the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Elad, and they went and dwelt among the people. Moses' father-in-law built an alliance with the people of Israel. And the Kenites, part of his family, had then gone and just lived. They were now living among the people of Israel. And they were living as Israelis. That was the point. But there was this guy, we read here, Heber, in verse 11, who apparently wasn't doing that. Now, the Kenites were doing a decent thing. They were actually friends of Israel and they were living with Israel. They were, they were apparently seeking the God of Israel. But this particular guy, on the other hand, decided he didn't want to do that. He wasn't going to be a friend of Israel. And so he pitches his tent somewhere else. And as he pitches his tent somewhere else, that means this guy is, in essence, declared himself no friend of Israel. As a matter of fact, what we're going to find is he happens to be a friend of the enemy. What's interesting, ladies, now I want to put you in the state of this. How do you feel being that guy's wife? Because this particular guy, I mean, imagine what it would be like every night at dinner, talking about how he hates Israel, talking about how, you know, how we, because we're going to find this, he seems to be a friend with this king, the king that dwells in Hazor, Yabin, and of a sister of the army. So here it is, he's talking about the, the people who hate Israel and how he's such good friends with them. And there you are as the wife who's seeking, perhaps, in this it seems, that she's seeking the God of Israel. 
How hard do you push that? Where do you make waves on that? Do you bite your tongue? Do you just let them rant? Is it just one of those you agree to disagree? We don't have any record of how that played out in their household. But ladies, do you take initiative when you have the chance, when you know it is in clear defiance of your husband? Scripture tells us in the book of Colossians that women are submit to their husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And that is important. So what does that mean? That means is they choose to rank themselves under accept and only accept if their husband demands that they sin. Then they can't be submitting to God by submitting to them because they would have to choose between them. Now, God willing, may that never be the case of any of you in here, that ever a husband would ever say, and then if you're that, ladies, tell me, because we'll, we'll talk. The point is, is that clearly that is not, and, and that's what we find here, and she's going to be quite a woman in this. Well, there's our women that we meet. And so we read, by the way, then. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the, verse 12. So they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. He went full force. And all the people who were with him, from Harashaf Goyim to the river Kishon. Deborah says, now in verse 14, look at Deborah. I love you for this, Deb. Deborah says to Barak, up. For this day, this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now, interestingly enough, notice this. That what, I mean, even after being rebuked, He'll gather the men, but he won't take the initiative to engage the promise. God says, I've got you victory, but you're going to have to step into battle. And in this, Deborah has to go a step beyond this and not just tell him, go get the people like God said. Go get this thing and get to the battle. Now that they are, now they're out on Mount Tabor, and, she's, and Deborah says, hey, didn't God say, do it. Don't just know it. Now, don't miss this. If you're, at, if you're looking at a beautiful place, the, 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 the area that they're at is nearly Megiddo. The valley in between that and Mount Tabor is the valley of the hill of Megiddo. The word for hill in Hebrew is the word Har. So the hill of Megiddo is Har Megiddo, or Har Megiddo, which is where we get the term Armageddon from. The battle would take place in this 11 to 16 mile jaunt, that's a flat surface between this area of Megiddo and this mount that they call Tabor. Tabor is the easiest mountain. And we go when we've gotten, and Sarah's seen it, when we go up to where Elijah is, where you see the place of burning. And we look and we see this gigantic valley where we know this battle is going to take place. I know Nate's seen it too. I know that Moraine's seen it too. And on the far side of that is this round dome. I mean, there's all kinds of hills that look very, you know, mountainy. But Mount Tabor looks like a pimple. I mean, it's just round. It's very, very round. And that is where these guys are at. But don't miss this tactically for a second. Let's say we were the army that had been gathered by Barak. As we were the army that had been gathered by Barak, they're coming at us with 900 chariots. We don't have any chariots. They have weapons. We don't have any weapons is what we're going to find. Not a weapon will be found among us. We have ox goads. Those are the kind of things. We have 
farmer's tool. So think about it. We're coming out with shovels, pickaxes at best, and those pitchforks. We kind of look like something from like the scene in Frankenstein. Why would we be up on a hill? Because if we're up on the top of the mountain of Mount Tabor, it puts us at the best advantage for guys coming at us with chariots. The worst place for us to fight a bunch of chariots is in a level plain, because then they have all kinds of advantage. But trying to get them up the hill gives us a little bit of advantage. The archers can shoot at them. We can roll rocks down at them. And what Deborah says is God did not say, go sit up on this mountain and wait for this. God did not say, go sit up on your mountain and wait for the thing to come to you. God says, go after it, man. Go after it. Go after it. You go, but I don't, but if I go after it, I'm going to be put in a level playing field where they seem to be at the advantage. God says, how could they possibly be at the advantage when I promised you victory? How could possibly you think that the enemy, but they may have more money, they may have the press, they might have more oomph, they may have whatever. I don't care. God says, you don't understand then. Walk in faith. I promised you victory. Do it wherever I tell you, because in the end of it all, you won't be able to blame Mount Tabor for your victory or your archer skills or your rolling hills down. You know, rolling boulders or whatever. In the end of it all, I'll put it in such a way so that only I can bring you the victory because I'm going to give you the victory. Trust me and let's do this. There's the problem. Well, they'll hear me on this. When Elijah stands against the prophets of Baal, by the way, again, on the other side in Mount Carmel, he will go to Mount Carmel to go against those prophets. And that's important because according to what the prophets of Baal would speak on, and according to tradition, it speaks... The historians would say that Baal dwelt on Mount Carmel. He rode on the back of an ox and he shot lightning bolts. And think about what Elijah did. Elijah said, let's go up to Mount Carmel. We'll slaughter an ox. And then whoever answers with a lightning bolt wins. Did he not give him every possible chance? He was that convinced that God would give him the victory. And he was that convinced that the, the Baal was not a real God at all. We are too, right? I mean, we're aware that the things people worship aren't real. We're just afraid to follow God into those battles. So she says, get up. Didn't God say that go down and get this? Well, go down and get it. So, verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and he fled away on foot. So the guy is running now. The battle is being taken down. This 900 chariots all being taken down, just like the 20,000 that Joshua saw taken down by God. And what we're going to find, by the way, when we get to the next chapter, verse 20, is that God did it. You know, we'll talk about rain and hail and, and storms. According to Josephus, by the way, not that he's, he's just a historian, but he would say that the hail fell so hard and it fell diagonally that it looked like it was just being flung at the horses. Nonetheless, as he fled, by the way, Verse 16 says, But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hargoyim, back where they came from. And the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left, except this guy, Sisera, the captain of the army. However, verse 17, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Yael. Remember her, ladies? That's the wife of Heber, the guy that, didn't, that was no friend of Israel. It said that the wife of Heber, the Kenite, there was peace between Yabin, king of Chazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. 
And Yael went out to meet Sisera. Notice, by the way, she went out to meet him. Do you know what that tells us, ladies? She had initiative. She took the initiative that you didn't see Barak take. Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. This is a gal who would not succumb to the culture of her husband. This is somebody that was willing to take the initiative. And it says then, verse 19, And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. He's telling her to lie, of course. So Yael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And there, is the, and there we see the beginning of a pagan temple. Uh, anyways, uh, sorry. And then Barak pursued Sisera. Yael came out to meet him. And she said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. Remember, he said, if anyone asks, tell him I'm not here. She went out and said, hey, the guy you're looking for, let me show you him. You might be surprised. I'll show you the man whom you seek. And he went into her tent. There lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Yabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And in the hand of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Yabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Yabin, king of Canaan. And now we'll go through the next thing. It's just a song. I don't want to say just, but it goes quick. But notice, by the way, the emphasis on willingly offered versus refusing. Deborah and Brock, I mean, what could be better after a battle like this than singing a song? So Deborah, by the way, not only is a battle leader, but she's also a, a psalmist. And that kind of sounds a little like David. Deborah and Barak, the son of Achanum, sang on that day, saying, When the leaders of Israel, when the people, notice, willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Stop, we're almost done. Twenty different times in Scripture we're told to bless the Lord. And I don't know if you realize this. That's an amazing thought. We have a blessable God. Do you realize that? <clears throat> Try to see that on the images that you see of other gods, things that they paint. You don't see these happy guys around. We have a blessable God. Do you know what that means? It means our God can be pleased. Our God can be blessed. And she says, when people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. When people are like, here I am, Lord, send me, bless the Lord. That's the idea. And by the way, we see often, and it's a side note, victory tends to breed song in Scripture. I don't know if you thought about that. David, by the way, writes, by the way, when the Lord had given him victory on all of his sides in, that, in Psalm 18.1. Moses, if you remember, in Exodus 15, when the, by the way, not when they had gotten out of Egypt, not with all of the plagues, we don't read any plague, you know, Joshua, or I say Moses, the plague album. But we do read when the enemies of Israel, when Pharaoh's army was swallowed up in the water, when God closed up the Red Sea on him, then he says, I will sing unto the Lord, the Lord. He says, I will exalt the Lord for the horse and the rider he has cast in the sea. When Moses saw true victory, song became part of that. Then his sister Miriam does the same. 
Same chapter, Exodus 15. Isaiah 12 says, by the way, cry out and shout, O inhabitant in Zion, for great is the Holy One in your midst. <clears throat> if you remember when Mary was promised the victory, by the way, in this case, the child and the child would redeem the world, she begins to sing. And at the defeat of, of Babylon in, in Revelation 19, they sing Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Heaven seems to be a place with a lot of singing. You've noticed that, I'm sure. Never wonder why? Because victory breeds song. And heaven is a place of great victory. So when the people willingly bless, when they willingly offer themselves to the Lord, or willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, I even I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. I don't know why I even I, maybe he didn't have a great voice. <clears throat> Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled. The heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. Get this? That means there was rain. You got that, right? The mountains gushed before the Lord. Then Sinai, before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, remember that was the last, that third guy? The son of Anak. And in the days of Yael, that's now, the highways were deserted. The travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. Uh, notice arose a mother in Israel. And you get the idea. She's like, could you imagine of all the people for God to do this? A mother. There I was wiping a nap, wiping the kid after their nappy change. And in all of that, God says, you're going to be the one to lead. Ladies, do not diminuinize the call that God has placed on your life. Oh, they chose new gods. There was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. But my heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Can I ask, do you have a heart today that willingly offers yourself to the Lord? Speak, you who ride on white donkeys. By the way, the idea of that's a person who sits as a judge. We read that for Jesus when he comes riding, of course, on Palm Sunday on a donkey. <coughs> who sit in judges' attire, who walk along the road. Far from the noise of the archers, among the watering places, they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Then Barak jumps in on his part of the duet. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, she responds, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, those who were in the roots, uh, whose roots were in Amalek, after you, Benjamin, with your people, from Achir rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar with Deborah. As Issachar, so was, De so was Barak sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Now get this. He's saying, well, look at all the people who jumped in on this fight. Ephraim jumped in. Benjamin jumped in. Zebulun jumped in. Issachar jumped in. Reuben is like, look at all of this. But then he says, why do you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Wait a minute. Some people, on the other hand, were hiding among the sheep. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued on the seashore and stayed by his inlets. He goes, now what about you guys? Some of you guys from Reuben, Gilead, Dan, Asher. You guys didn't jump in. 
How do you like to be that part of the song? It's like, look at all these guys, these many men, and then there were those guys. Verse 18 says, Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also in the heights of the battlefields. And that becomes part of the song. The kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh. <coughs> Excuse me, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon, and that's the river that would go through there today. It's just a brook. Back in those days, it would have been quite, a, quite much larger. And what God says here is the ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, at this point was really part of the battle. God brought stars. God brought rain. God brought hail. God brought, you know, things spouting out of the, out of the, uh, uh, out of the uh, mountains. And then here as well, that the rivers. God used all of these things in, his, in this battle. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. And this is what happens when you see God respond. Your soul gets strengthened. Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of the steeds. Kurs Muros, and that is a place, by the way. By the way, it's, it means refuge. It's a place in the north. Said the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to, to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty. God says that whole place, nobody came to help. Nobody stood in. And I think, is there any meadows in my heart where I'm so busy just trying to find a little place of comfort and not willing to follow God when he calls me to the battle? Now, if God called, and now think about it, if you're going to bring all the horses and chariots, what could be better for that? All the things you could do to fight against them, but if God brought a horrible rainstorm, horses don't do well in that and chariots even worse. God says, I already know how to take down this thing. This, these guys are no battle to me. Most blessed among the women is Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. He makes it in, by the way. Notice, and I remind you, he would have been a guy that would have actually probably been very upset about her. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked her for water. She gave him milk. She brought up cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched out her hand to the tent peg her right hand to the worker's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. And I think the song is starting to move into something a little bit more hardcore. At this point, it started to be like this. At her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? The wisest ladies answered her, Yes, she answered herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil, every man a girl or two, for Sisera plundering of dyed garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter? Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years. This is how the song ends and this ends. It ends with her saying, there really are two groups of people here. There are going to be those that trust you, God, and there are going to be those who not. Which means, by the way, Heber is in the wrong camp. Which means, by the way, not only is Heber in the wrong camp, the entire village of Meraz was also in the wrong camp. Does that make sense? Because they didn't come to the battle. There's no middle ground here. You're either for them or against them. You either gather with them or you scatter. Jesus doesn't say there are free agents. And that's really rough. 
Because the people who, by the way, I get that there were people that were actively, like, for instance, Sisera. That guy's clearly and actively an enemy. But what's amazing is what God says is an enemy doesn't have to just look like somebody who comes at you. An enemy could just look like somebody who does nothing. And that hurts. So listen, as I close this up, and there's so much more I could say, obviously, but I want to, you know, this is the inventory I took as I look at this. Am I really obedient? Like in verse 6. The opposite of verse 6. But I trust God enough to act. Not like Barak in verse 7. Would I be willing to do it alone if necessary? Not like Barak in verse 8. Would I be willing to take the initiative? Not like Barak in verse 14. Would I willingly offer myself like the men who were heroes in this battle? And not like Miraz. But are we willing to not run from responsibility, like in verse 16? But are we willing to lay my life out, if necessary, like in verse 17? Would I be willing to be committed even to death, like verse 18? Because God says, now that's a real man. And can I dare say it, ladies? It seemed to me that Deborah and Yael were more men than the men in this chapters, for the most part. Now, because it's a historical passage, it isn't like we can say, well, this is what happens when guys don't step up, women just should. But might I say this, ladies, would you pray with me that God would raise up godly men? The church is in a very dangerous place. I'm not talking about us, the church in general. Because what's supposed to happen are the men are supposed to be a representative of the living God, our Father. And can you imagine the two roles that God seeks to present himself are the two most intimate, proper, and holy relationships that are on earth. The role of a father and the role of a husband. And I can understand why they are being horribly misrepresented by the men who are supposed to be representing them. But though we can't change the world in the sense of making them all be like that, we can make the choice to be those men, to be proper to be decent fathers and to be decent husbands and to lead in the right ways and not to be a despot. I mean, a person who sits around and says, well, in faith, you guys go do stuff and I'll do nothing. But a man who leads, you can't lead people unless you're going somewhere. But for that to happen, we need to have the kind of faith that would obey God when he calls us to the hard, hard choices. And then one that would be committed to the very end. That would be committed even if that means risking our lives. That means even if we have to stand alone, we have to be willing to do so. Because if we're going to be that, you know who we're going to look a lot like? Somebody who chose to empty himself of all of his godly properties, if you will, and clothe himself in flesh, to only do what the Father said, to only exercise power that the Father gave, never take back his own, not on earth, and was obedient and committed to death. Because that's my Savior. And he did that because if he didn't, I would go to hell without a choice. It's that simple. But because he was committed, because he was obedient, because he was faithful, I have the choice to say yes and to stand before a father who wants to adopt me, that I was his enemy. And he took that initiative and I'm supposed to represent him and I call myself a Christian. How can I call myself a Christian and not be committed? How can I call myself a Christian and not take initiative? How could I call myself a Christian and still somehow in this assume that the whole world will correct itself if I just sit here and do nothing? 
How can I assume that I'm not part of the problem if that's who I'm going to be? My Jesus took perfect initiative before I was even his enemy. And he was committed and obedient and faithful. And that's my hero. And that's who I want to be like. And that's who I want you to be like men. Ladies, that's who I want you to be like. I want us to follow him. And to follow him in such a way that people are amazed. To be honest, that we are amazed at who we are. But let's be honest. We are incapable of doing that in the flesh. So the only hope we have is to let God's Holy Spirit do it in us. But for that, we have to be willing to let Him. And that's my prayer tonight. That we would have a song that will come because of victory. Because we are that obedient, that faithful, that committed. And to be with other people that are willing to say, hey, let's go into the battle. Didn't He promise us victory? Pray with me, would you please? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this amazing two chapters. And God, I look at these men in this and I just, I know that there are times in my life where you could have put me, inserted me in there and I wouldn't have looked any different. And I realize there are other times I'd rather you spend time really highlighting where I think that things are really looking a little better. But I have the rest of my life in front of me, however long that will be. And I'm praying right now that tonight, Lord, we would be people that are committed not just to the cycle of however long the figure is in front of us, but rather for the rest of our lives to make you our Lord. And in that, as you say, Jesus, how can you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? We recognize calling you Lord means that we do what you say. But we don't just do what we say, what you say because we mindly, mindlessly follow you but rather because we trust you and in trusting you, we know that what you say is right. So Lord, lead us to victory after victory and fill our hearts with song as a result and make us people that are committed contrary to our culture, people who are faithful contrary to our culture, people who are strong and will take initiative, not just wait till we're asked to do something or even worse, we're rebuked like Deborah, who had to on two occasions with Barak here. But men with initiative that says, here I am, send me. Not just, okay, I'll go. Make us men. Make us people who have that kind of girth. We pray for the ladies, God, right now I pray. For the single women in our fellowship, Lord, that have yet to say yes to, to a husband I pray, Lord, that they would not find themselves married to a man who isn't this kind of man. And they wouldn't even be, I'm going to go beyond that, God, I pray that they wouldn't even be attracted to a guy who isn't this kind of man. And I pray for the men, myself included, that no life would look attractive to us but this kind of life, the life of a real man. Jesus, thank you for being the perfect example of a real man. And make us those kind of men, I pray. Thank you for dying on the cross on our behalf. Thank you for raising again from the dead. Thank you for your commitment, your obedience, your faithfulness. And as your spirit lives in me now, manifest that very thing in my life, I pray. As I declare you as my Lord and Savior, thank you. I trust you'll do this because it's according to your will. I know that's what you want. Make us such people where we are amazed. Jesus, in your name.
Amen. Beloved, thank you for the privilege of being able to be in the Word with you, for the honor of being your pastor. Quick announcement on this. Uh, The Lord has provided for us to stay. Probably aware of that, but we just wanted to make clear. The Lord's not only provided, he He has, like always, done exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. The Lord has not just raised the money that was necessary on by December 1st for us to be able to pay for our visa. But if things continue the way they are at the moment, He's actually provided the amount for us to get our indefinite leave. And that's even more. The Lord has not only doubled what we, what we had prayed for, but He'd gone well beyond that. And that is an act of God and only God. So I want to thank Him and I want to thank Him with you guys if that's okay because this is an investment that my whole life is following Jesus, loving my family, and loving you. And I'm so thankful I get to do more of that. I'm so thankful. Um, the other thing is that... Uh, what was the other thing? We were going to pray for something. What in the world? See, I'm so brain dead from that. Something, Something's going on. Is it this week or something? Or Oh, I know what it is. Hello. David Birch and Arena's wedding. See? That's, yeah, I kind of need to be there for that. Uh Hey, you are aware of the fact that David and Arena are doing this because they want people to get saved, right? I mean, they are, I guess they've already gone now, right? To be officially legally married. Um, and so now they, but the whole purpose of the ceremony is for people to get saved. Don't you think that's a great thing to pray for? And let's face it, the people that they're inviting to this thing, they're people who probably haven't heard the gospel, many, many of which, but they've sure seen worldly versions, unmanly men in the church. That I can tell you, many of them have already told me their stories. What they haven't seen is what a real man looks like. And that's not somebody who just beats up other people. It's a man who's committed to selflessness. I can tell you all the people that I've ever fought, it was never because I was being selfless. <laughs> At least that I can think of. So let's pray for those two things. Can we do that? Thank the Lord. And then we'll uh, pray. Lord, Again, I'm blown away by your faithfulness. I don't know why it's such an amazing thing. I think just because uh, it's so beautiful to be have another story where we can say, look at how you provided again. Look at how you did something that was so profound, so perfect. And I want to thank you for that. And Lord, I, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for not only just being able to have that time tonight, but really to be out time beyond this. To have a future, Lord. And for... I know that was my wife's heart was to not just have the visa provided but also the indefinite leave because we know that that all the more confirms in her heart how you want us here. And we want to obey you even above our heart, even above the things that we crave. But thank you when as we delight in you, you give us the desires of our heart. You put them in there. And grant them. And this is one of those clear cases. Our heart's desire is to see a ministry here flourish and transform London. And I pray you would do that. And with that, Lord, thank you for giving us now this opportunity. Of course, we can't foresee the future in regards to what's between now and that time. But we say, Lord, continue it, we pray. Lord, as we have our meeting for the visa, uh, to apply for a visa a week from tomorrow at one, lead our fellowship to pray, I pray. 
And in that, Lord, I pray that we would quickly get our indefinite leave and that everything will work out. We just thank you that we can move forward as you call us to. And, and Lord, also, we pray for the salvation of every person that will be coming to David and Arena's wedding. We pray, Lord, that they would really discover you. Discover you. And Lord, that your gospel will be preached clearly, verbally, but also in the way that they can see between David and Arena. And in that, bring salvation, a tremendous harvest. And not just a temporary reaction, but a permanent life change. Prepare us all for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.